I'm going to invite you to take your Bibles to the New Testament letter to the Romans, Romans chapter 4, and though your outline says verse 18, we're going to pick it up in verse 13. Romans chapter 4 and verse 13. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations, in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Father, thank you for such liberating truth. And thank you that we can look to the father of the faith. We can look to Abraham as an example on multiple fronts. And may today you illuminate our minds and our hearts to the truth of your word. Truths that we may have already known but need to be re-inflamed in our hearts. And Father, for those who are here today who have yet to experience the glorious truth of justification by faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone. May today be the dawning of new life, the new creature that comes, that they leave this place not as they came. And so, Father, we thank you for an open Bible. May your spirit truly be our preacher, our teacher, and may we have ears to hear. May we have minds attentive to the things that you would have for us. May you lay aside all the distractions of the past week, uh, the not promised week ahead of us. And may you, again, just capture each and every heart. For Jesus' sake, amen. You may be seated. Well, we went back and read verse 13 uh, to the end of the chapter, though we did look at verses 13 um, through 17 last week. And there was just so much in these two sections, or in this one section, that that's why we decided to break it up in two. But in order to go back uh, to get the whole Uh, context and understand what's being said here, we needed to pick it up on verse 13. And what we have here is the whole chapter deals with Abraham. As you know, Abraham is, uh, is set apart as the father of faith. He is the one that we look to as the model of justification by faith alone, in Christ alone, uh, by grace alone. Uh, He shows for us uh, that works does not uh, get us salvation. He shows us that the law cannot do this, nor does ritual, because he was before the law and he was before circumcision. And so all the arguments of the Jews that that they would levy against Paul are now answered in the person of Abraham. And so Abraham now comes to us not only as the example of what it means to be justified by faith in Christ alone, by promise alone, he also models for us the Christian life, the Christian life. And I want you to stay with me on that, because the way that we see Abraham exercising faith is the way the Christian life is lived, is that he models for us, you know, the irrationality of faith. And so we will look at that uh, in detail under the uh, second point, I believe. But the first thing I want us to see here is that the language of chapter 4 is all about the Christian life. Is that Paul is bringing forth, really, the introduction uh, of the doctrinal application of the Christian life. We will see the word believe, believed, six times in chapter 4. We will see the word righteous, righteousness, seven times. 
justifies or justification two times, faith ten times, promise promised four times, hope two times, and resurrection implied twice. And you say, well, why do you say that, Jim? Why do you emphasize that? Because we have to look at Abraham not only as the example of what it means to be justified by faith, but as I mentioned, we need to see him as the example on how you are to live your Christian life every day. Is it you lift your you live your Christian life, and I'm getting ahead of myself, but you live your Christian life based exclusively on promises. Peter would tell us in the second letter that God has granted to us these very precious and great promises, that by these you would be partakers of the divine nature. I'm so fearful as I look at the man in the mirror, and I'm sure you face this too, and and I talked about this briefly before the service, is that we have a tendency to live our Christian life based on subjective experience more than objective truth. And when I say subjective experience, I'm talking about feelings. There are times that you are going to be called, like Abraham, to exercise faith in a promise that you don't feel. And that you're going to have to just base your, your Christianity, on, as the, as the Puritans would say, on the naked promise of God. You are going to have to trust, as William Grinnell would say, in a withdrawing God. There are going to be times in your life that you don't feel the presence of God. What a surprise. There are going to be times that all you have is the promise. And I will tell you, as you know, the more you go in the Christian life, you will be like Abraham. You will be able to say nothing is too hard for God. And that the promises indeed will hold. In the deep valleys of sorrow, the promises will hold. In the overwhelming trials of life, when you, can't, when you feel like you can't go another day, the promise will get you into another day. And so the promises become really the anchor of the whole of the Christian life. We are born again by the word of promise. We are sustained by the word of promise. And we will ultimately be glorified by the word of promise. And so in chapter 4, we see Abraham, the father of faith, modeling for us justification by faith, apart from works, apart from law, apart from ritual, but he also models for us the Christian life. Let's take a look at verses 13 through 18. The first thing we want to see here is, I've labeled it the substance in the promise. The substance itself is justification by by faith. When I look at substance, I'm I'm directing it towards two individuals or two groups of people. The first, as we will see in verses 13 um, through uh, 18, it's to Abraham himself. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression." That is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the father, uh, the faith of Abraham. And it goes on, who is the father of us all, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. So the promise is first given to Abraham. It's given individually to Abraham. In verse 13, we have it directed to him for the promise to Abraham. And that he, he would be the heir of the world. We move down in verses 17 and 18. And we find God singularly, individually saying to Abraham, I have made you the father of many nations. We also go down in verse 18. And we find that he should become the father of many nations. So the promise of justification by faith or righteousness imputed begins with the individual. The personal pronouns in the singular address to Abraham draw us back to the covenant callings that he had. In Genesis chapter 12, you don't need to turn to these. But in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1 through 3, this is what we would read. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. So that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. 
We could go on and see more of these covenant promises given to Abraham individually in Genesis 18. God would say this in verse 17. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. We carry that over to Genesis 22, verse 17. I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. The blessing came to Abraham individually. Righteousness and justification comes to us not as a group setting, but it comes to us individually. Is that he was promised a land. He was promised a people. He was promised that he would be a blessing to the entire world. But Abraham was justified by faith as an individual. And every one of you today, if you are Christians, you have been justified by faith individually as if you and God were the only two people doing transaction concerning justification. And unless you see that you were the only sinner in the whole world, and that Christ came on a mission to rescue you and to save you, if you don't see that personally and individually, then you are missing the whole crux of the Christian uh, living. Is that God comes to us individually. He comes to us as a personal God. And you are converted individually. You must come to grips and ask the question, have I been born again individually, personally, by a personal God who justifies personal sinners? And if you don't get there, we don't get any further. I'm not not a Christian. I didn't grow up in a Christian home. I can't ride. If I I did, I couldn't ride on the coattails of my parents. And some of you did ride, uh, did, did grow up in Christian homes. Your parents' salvation is not yours. And justification by faith is first and foremost individual. And it's just like when when the disciples were out doing the work of the ministry, and they were all excited, and they came back to Jesus, and they start reporting all these things, and Jesus asked the question to the group. He says, well, who do people say that I am? And some say, well, you're Elijah, and you're that. And he looks at Peter, and he says, but who do you say that I am? That's the same way here. Abraham, he was justified individually before God. If we are going to be justified by faith, you must answer the individual question. Who is Jesus Christ? What did Jesus Christ do? And is that applied to you individually as if, as I said, you're the only sinner in the world? You have to live that way initially. But what you cannot do is get converted individually and live your Christian life privately. Is there's no such thing as Christianity without community. And that leads us to the second application. Look at verse 13 of number 4, of verse 4, or chapter 4. I'll get it right, that's the third try. So, <laughs> not only is justification by faith promised to Abraham individually, as it is to us individually, but also impacts community, or corporately, or all Christians. Abraham is the father of faith, and he's the father of faith of all Christians. Look at verse 13, for the promise to Abraham, and notice what Paul would write, and his offspring, not physically, his offspring. Uh, And now go down to verse 16. That is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. Notice this is singular offspring. You go down to uh, verse 18. Of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. Paul would identify what this offspring is, or who it is, I should say, in Galatians chapter 3, verse 16. Listen how Paul would identify the very things that he says of Abraham in Romans 4, tracing all the way back to those covenant promises. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 16, we read, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It is not say, and to offsprings, plural, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ? Get a hold of that. 
Abraham's offspring is Christ or the body of Christ. It is the whole of Christianity. It is the whole of Christians. Christopher Ashe would say this, quote, Abraham's offspring is neither singular or individual, nor plural and individual. Rather, it is singular and corporate, the whole family of God in Christ, end quote. That means you cannot be a professing Christian and claim to be justified by faith and live outside the community. You can't live outside the community. It's contrary to the very promises that God gave to Abraham. It's contrary to the very commands of Jesus. It's contrary to the whole of the New Testament. You cannot be a Christian and live outside of community life. And so this justification by faith, it certainly is individual. It was to Abraham and it is to us. But it extends into the corporate, the corporate world of the body. And one thing that's evident about new birth, about justification by faith, is that when it does happen to you individually, like we saw in the ABF, like Ferguson was talking about, you know, our union in Christ and the whole new world, how it changes when you become a Christian. What happens when you're justified by faith, like Abraham individually? You desire community. You want community. You can't help but be in community. You just have this deep passion within you. I cannot be away from God's people. I need to be with God's people. It's a need of necessity. It's a need of desire. And eventually, I believe, it's going to be a need of survival. Is that we're going to need each other to the level of of commitment to one another because of the pressure of the world upon the church. Let's move on now. Verse 14. So the substance then of this justification by faith with the promise, the substance is directed to individuals. Abraham as the example, and then corporately to us who uh, comprise the body of Christ. But notice then the fulfillment of the promise. And in order for the fulfillment of the promise, God gives this promise that he'll justify sinners. God gives promise that the Savior will come and create a forever family. The fulfillment of the promise relies upon two essential elements. Faith and grace. Faith and grace. Verse 14. For it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs. Faith is null and the promise is void. That is why it depends on faith. Verse 16. In order that the promise may rest on grace. Those three, that triad is inseparable. Faith promise grace that that is inseparable that is a triad like the chief virtues in the christian life faith hope and love faith promise grace that's inseparable law and faith do not have any relationship law and grace have no relationship faith and grace have relationship and that they are linked as an inseparable bond by promise And it's important that we understand that when we talk about faith, and Paul mentions faith a lot in this this chapter, is that faith isn't something you generate. Faith isn't something that you earn. Faith itself is a gift. In Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, we read, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourself, it is the gift of God. It's not just the grace and salvation is the gift. The faith to believe is the gift as well. It's the whole package. And so when we read that the the promise to be justified by faith in God's propitiation, in the sacrifice of Christ, that faith is something outside of ourselves that is given to us. It is a faith that is a gift. It is faith that is not passive. It is a faith, as I mentioned, that is linked to the promises. And the glorious thing about that, when you go through periods of doubt and periods of of fear, and you say, I wonder if I'm truly in the faith, step back and remember, you never did anything to get you the faith to put you in there anyway. So it, it was given to you in the very beginning. God the Father gave you the faith so that you would be regenerated, so that you would be in Christ, so that you would be justified, so that you could live the Christian life. And you can even plead the Father. 
I'm going through doubt, Father. I'm going through darkness. I, I don't know if I'm in the faith or not. Uh, since it's a gift from you, would you affirm the gift in me? Would you give me the evidence of this? And he will. Remember the elements of faith, though. Faith isn't a feeling. Faith isn't an emotion. Faith is based on knowledge. Faith is based on knowledge assented to as truth. And faith is relied upon by, your, by the individual that leads to the fulfillment of the promise. And so what did Abraham do? He exercised faith. And the same faith that we get is the same faith that he got. And so the first sound, the promise is going to be fulfilled. It's got to be by faith. And the thing I don't want you to do, I don't want you to walk out of here and think that you can generate faith. You cannot. You can receive faith. But you can't generate faith. And you can grow in the faith, which we'll look at. Let's take a look at the next one. Look at verse 16. Here's the second necessary element for the fulfillment of God's promise. So we have the substance. Justification by faith, the glorious doctrine. It's individual. Abraham's the model. It also has implications corporately. It forms the body of Christ, to which we are all to be participants. Not spectators, participants. Next, the, how is this promise of justification fulfilled? It's by faith. It's by faith. Secondly, it's through grace. Through grace. Verse 16. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace. Now, you know that we're saved by grace. Most of you, if not all of you, could quote Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, which I read. And that you find throughout the Bible, the New Testament in particular, you find that salvation is all of grace. 2 Timothy 1, 8 through 9. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, just like he called Abraham, not because of works, but because of his own purpose and grace which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. If I was to ask you, what is the definition of grace, what would you say? Because we talk a lot about grace, and we should. We talk a lot about grace. How would you define grace? Most people say, well, it's God's unmerited favor. The, The word teros. Yes, it means unmerited favor. But I think that we got to be careful with this. And we, the way I say that is because it's so easy to think of grace as a thing that's given to us. Grace is not a thing. It was, a, I, I, I kind of smiled when we were watching Ferguson this morning because uh, uh, he, he stole some of my stuff. And I watched it yesterday, but my sermon was almost done, so I didn't steal any of his stuff. But, but he brought up a good point, and, I, and this is what I say about grace is not a thing. We always talk about, well, the grace of God. I am what I am by the grace of God, and I'll read a testimony of John Newton on that. You know, and God gives me grace. It's almost like this grace is just something that's out there that God just pours into us. Grace is not a thing. Grace is a person. Grace is a person. Ferguson did say this, quote, and this wasn't from what we saw. Jesus Christ is God's grace. And when the New Testament speaks about the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, it's not thinking primarily about something that is given to us, but someone who is given to us. The grace is in Christ. The grace is Christ. And this is why the gospel invitation, get a hold of this, the gospel invitation is not come and receive grace, but come and receive the Lord Jesus. There's a difference. You receive Lord Jesus, what do you get? You get the very thing that John says of the Logos in chapter 1 of his gospel. What is the very first qualities that John states, apart from the deity of Christ and the eternality of Christ in the first couple of verses of John 1? What does he say in John 14 about the incarnation and what were the qualities found in the walking God-man? And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, Full of grace and truth. Those aren't things. They are found in the person of the Lord Jesus. And out of his being flows grace and truth. You say, well, I know that. But the question that I have for you and for me. Do I find myself daily walking. Not asking God for the power of his grace to get me through a tough situation. 
But am I walking in a conscious awareness that the God of grace and the fullness of grace dwells within me and walks with me throughout all those trials and tribulations? It changes everything. When you realize that you're not asking, you're not, you're not looking at grace as behind the glass with a sign that says break in case of emergency. No, grace is not in a glass case. Grace is in the fullness of the God-man who came and he dwells within us. He justifies us by grace so that we would walk with him who is full of grace. And so when Paul would say that the promise rests on grace... It links to the person of the Lord Jesus because Paul would say in the Corinthian letter that all the promises of God are what? Yes and yes in Christ. Everything is in Christ from start to finish. I think sometimes we have, and I mentioned this again in the ABF in reading Michael Horton's book a while back, Christless Christianity. I'm fearful that sometimes we have a Christless Christianity. Now you may say, whoa. You know, we're replacing you. Um, the reality of it is, is that we can have all the right doctrine, all the right theology, all the right programs, all the right um, uh, structure, all the right order of services. We can have all that and then leave Christ out of every bit of it. Every bit of it. And so our responsibility is not to do Christless Christianity. And so we have then that this the second necessary element if we are going to be justified by faith, it's got to be by grace. And that means it has to be by promise. And the only thing that we bring to the table to be justified by, by faith is our need. That's all we bring. We just bring our need. We bring our sin. We bring our fallenness. That's all we bring. And then comes swooping down the glorious fullness of grace in Christ Jesus. And come grabbing us in the arms of divine unmerited favor. The promise that comes through grace by faith. Here's the story of John Newton. A few years before the death of John Newton, when his sight was so dim that he could no longer read, a friend and brother in the ministry called to have breakfast with him. Their custom was to read the word of God following the breakfast, after which Newton would make a few short remarks on the Bible passage, and then appropriate prayer would be offered. That day, however, due to his eyesight, there was silence after the words of Scripture, by the grace of God, I am what I am, was read. After the silence, Newton finally spoke. I am not what I ought to be. How imperfect and deficient I am. I am not what I wish to be, although I abhor that which is evil and would cling to what is good. I am not what I hope to be, but soon I shall be out of mortality and with it all sin and imperfection. Though I am not what I ought to be, nor what I wish to be, nor yet what I hope to be, I can truly say I am not what I once was, a slave to sin and Satan. I can hardly join with the apostle and acknowledge that by the grace of God I am what I am. Then after a pause, Newton said to his friend, and now we can pray. Friend, do you see everything in your life? Do do I see everything in my life? Resting on the grace performance of Christ and not the religious performance of me or of you? Abraham was not justified by works. Abraham was not justified by ritual. Abraham was not justified by law. He was justified by grace. That was effectual because of faith, which was linked to a promise. Get a hold of this. Your decision or your faith doesn't save you. You're not saved because because you're trusting your faith in Christ. You are saved because you are trusting Christ through the faith that God gave you. And there's a difference is that Christians can often base their assurance of salvation because I made a decision for Jesus 21 years ago and I have a little Bible where I signed the decision card that said that. That's not conversion. 
Now, some people do get saved and they can't remember their dates and all that, and it's fine. But you never, never ever trust your, what you did and trust not your profession because your profession is only because of your possession that causes you to profess. And that's the order. It's possession that leads to profession. It's not profession. And so we have then this promise fulfilled, and it's fulfilled by faith, and it's fulfilled through grace. Now let's move on to verses 18 through 22. So we have the promise given to Abraham. It applied to him individually, it applied to the church at large, corporately. The promise is effectual because of faith and grace. And now we have the promise acted upon. Here we see, here we see Abraham now becomes the model for all of the Christian life. And I want you to be so encouraged by what we see in Abraham. Because there's been times in your life, if it hasn't, it's coming. Is that you're going to be in a situation where all you have is a promise. Is that you are so overwhelmed with a trial. You are so overwhelmed with a circumstance. You are so overwhelmed with your insufficiency. That all you can do is exercise faith in a promise and it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense at all. Let's pick it up in verse 18. In hope he believed against hope. That he should become the father of many nations as he's been told. So shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body which was as good as dead. Since he was about a hundred years old. Or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. And you can read on um, that he has rewarded faith. And we'll look at that in the next point. But here, notice what he did. In hope, he believed against hope. Okay, if he's looking around horizontally, it's not happening. I'm 100 years old, really? Sarah, look at her. She's all wrinkled. <laughs> look at Sarah. It ain't happening. If he's looking horizontally as much as he loved her, the fact is this wasn't happening. And friends, if you try to interpret your circumstances in life, and if you try to go through your trials in life with nothing but a horizontal view because of your pain, you're going to fail. Is that You have to look vertical. And you have to cling to the irrational nature of faith. And how, is, how irrational is faith? How about this? The walls of Jericho. I can imagine being one of the soldiers on the walls and watching these crazy people go around this thing. Day after day after day. And then what happens? Uh-oh. The last day they walk around it and the trumpet blows and the walls start coming down. How many times did they laugh at those marching priests? How many times did they say, yeah, really? I wonder how the people felt when they stood outside the ark and they felt something fall from the sky. Hey, what is this stuff? I, Noah said something about rain. The irrational nature of faith is such that. Well, there's more. What about the irrational nature of faith with Peter walking on the water? Now, I've been on the water before, but there's been something to hold me up. He said, Come. Jesus, come to Peter. Peter said, Lord, if it's you, let, let me, tell me to come. And Jesus says, come. So what did Peter do? He exercised faith. And here's an important lesson. True faith always acts. True faith always acts. March around the walls of Jericho. No, we're just going to sit here and pray, and in seven days those walls are going to come down. No, they're not. You do what I tell you, and that shows faith. Peter, come, get out of the water. No, Lord, it's all good. Just come and join us in the boat. No, no, if you really believe, then you're going to step in the water. Well, what happens? Peter got out of, the, out of the boat. As you know, he walked on the water and he came to Jesus. How irrational is that? And, w- and when he did what? He didn't say when he saw the waves. He said when he saw the wind. And so Peter all of a sudden becomes a humanist. He goes from being a man of faith, stepping out, to a humanist. This doesn't make sense. This, this doesn't work. So next thing you know, he's headed to Davy Jones' locker. And what does the Lord do? He grabs him, as you know. 
here's, here's the lesson with Abraham. Is that it was completely illogical. It was irrational. That there's no possible way this is ever going to happen. But what did he do? It says he grew strong in faith. Because he believed the impossible. Because of the God who does the impossible. It says in Genesis 18, the Lord said, what is too hard for me? And I listen to that question as it resonates in my mind. And I'm thinking all I'm going through in my life, all the trials, when I'm ready just to tank the whole thing, is I'm thinking, God, I'm making you pretty small in this. I'm making you pretty small in this. Do I believe that you're sovereign? Then, then you got this. Do I believe you love me? Then, then this is going to be good. There's one more example I, I want to share, share with you about the irrationality of faith. It's Mary. Now remember, she's a young teenager. And imagine this virgin getting an angel appear to her and says, you're going to have a baby. And Mary said to the angel, how would this be? Irrational. No sense. Makes no sense whatsoever. And the virgin answered, I'm sorry, the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Now, how irrational is that? Can you imagine me in a 16, 17, maybe 14-year-old teenager and this angel appears out of nowhere and says, you're going to have a baby. Yeah, you've never known a man, but you're going to have a baby. And you're going to give birth to the creator. <laughs> and behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is his sixth month with her who is called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. Now notice how Mary responds, and this is the lesson for us that ties in with Abraham. Friends, as a Christian, unbelief is inexcusable. Now I realize we fight that. I know I do. But lying awake at night and being anxious riddled and worrying, you know what that is? It's unbelief. And it's focusing more on the circumstance or in the inner turmoil than it is the promise. And the promise says, he, he that keeps his mind on me, I will keep in perfect peace. Okay, that's not open for others. You don't need to be a Hebrew scholar to understand that. Keep your mind on me and you will be in peace. The problem is I get my mind off of him. The promises takes wings. And now I'm wrapped up in a lather because of the circumstances of my life. Because I've not been Abraham-like and I've not been Mary-like. And what did Mary do? In verse 38. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Wow. What mature faith for a young girl. She is saying, I don't understand it. I don't get it. Yet, you said it. And I'll believe it. And she was rewarded for her faith. I'm sure Abraham was, was struggling with the same thing. Because it says, against hope he struggled. He hoped against, so he struggled. But he shows us, he shows us this wonderful, irrational nature of faith. And friends, if, you, if your faith isn't being tested in this arena, you need to question what the faith truly is. Because there is no such thing as an untried faith. There is no such thing as an untested faith. If you find your Christianity easy and you find that you're just manageable going through life, then you need to question their foundations because we have it very clear that faith will be tested. Abraham was tested to the max. Mary was tested. Peter was tested. Paul was tested. And every single genuine Christian throughout Christendom to this very day is being tested in their faith. Well, let's move on now. Verse 20 and 21. We have now the conquering power of faith. We saw that God's promise was to individuals as well as to the church. God's promise acted on by Abraham. He models for us the irrational nature of faith. We now have the conquering power of faith. It's important we get a hold of this faith. Because God said it very clearly. That without faith it's impossible to please me. So if we want to be pleasing to Him, we have to learn to exercise faith. And we can and we will because it's a gift. 
And if we truly are recipients of the gift of faith, then we will respond to the testings. We're going to see that in, uh, in chapter 5 next week. Where what, per, what, what, what the testing, what, what justification does, it produces endurance, which implies testing. And so what we see then is that this conquering power of faith, it rests not in the quantity of faith, it rests in the qualitative person of faith, who we are pointing to. Look at verse 20 and 21. No unbelief made him waver or stagger concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. You see the narrow-minded blinders that Abraham has to have on? He can't be looking at Sarah. We already established she's over the hill. So he's not looking at Sarah. He's looking at one thing, the promise. He's got his mind fixed on the promise. And you should do a study in the New Testament how we are told to fix our minds and where we're told to fix our minds. And so this conquering power, it says he was fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Now it's interesting that in verse 19, Abraham's faith was stated in the negative. He was not weak in faith. Now we're told he grew strong in his faith. How could he do that? How can you and I grow strong in the faith? I want you to turn. This is the only time I'm going to have you turn in your Bible. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Faith operates in the realm of the unseen. Faith operates in the, in the realm of the unseen. In, the, in Hebrews chapter 11, the hall of fame of faith, they endured so much, and the promises weren't fulfilled, but they looked ahead to the fulfillment of the promises. Here is how you live the Christian life. You must live the Christian life by grace, by faith, in promises, and root and orient everything in the unseen world. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For the light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, that's not where faith lives. But to the things that are unseen, that's where faith lives. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. There's your orientation point in everything in life. All your trials must be seen through the lens of the unseen. All your circumstances which are used to conform you to the image of Christ are to be seen in the realm of the unseen. If you live in the world of the seen, then you are going to live more by experience and circumstances than you are by faith. Because what's in the realm of the seen? Feelings, experience, circumstances, situations. What is in the unseen? The promises looking ahead, faith grasping what is not yet. I just want to amplify this with one statement. The Christian is to live life in the now, not yet. You're to live in the now, not yet. The now is in the power of God's grace in the incarnate Christ dwelling within you, leaning on the promises, and the not yet is being sustained daily by looking ahead to what's going to happen. Anchoring your life in the next world and your thinking so that you are living by faith in a promise, soon to have faith give way to sight. And the promises fulfilled. All right, look at that verse 22. Here's the third thing. Under the second point, and that is the reward of faith. We have the conquering power of faith. Now we have the reward of faith. Verse 22, and that is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Why? Because he exercised irrational faith. He trusted the grace of God. And so what does Abraham do? He receives the reward for his faith, the declaration of righteousness before God. Not based on merit, but based on belief in God's promise. As I quoted Hebrews eleven six, Without faith it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards. God rewards faith. Because it, 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 it puts all the attention on him. And so our boasting is only in one place, the promiser, who gives us promises so that we can live promises to point back to the promiser, that he would get all the glory for what he's doing through the promise trusted by us. Does that make sense? 
It's true. I just don't grab a promise out of a little promise kettle and try to apply that. No, what I do is I fall in love with the promiser. And I look through the promiser and I see the promises connected to him and I see the splendor and the beauty and the majesty of the promiser who has promised me I will never leave you nor forsake you. Who has promised that I will be your shepherd and that you shall not want if you stay close to me. The reward of faith is this declaration of righteousness in Abraham's life. But I want you to think about the long haul, the reward of faith at the end of your journey. Your journey may end today. You don't know. My journey may end tomorrow. I don't know. But this is what we strive for. Paul writes in his very last letter before he goes to a martyr's death or martyrdom. 2 Timothy 4, 7 through 8, I have fought the good fight. I finished the race. I have kept the faith. And so he kept the faith. What does that mean? It means just like God has always promised that he will reward those who keep the faith. Paul says, Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will reward to me on that day. And not only mine, but to all who love his appearing. Friends, that's what will sustain you in the dark times. Living in the now and the not yet. Not looking at your circumstances, but looking into the day when you will hear from the Lord himself. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. And the crowns that Paul said we get, right now in the, around the, uh, the throne of God, there are 24 elders and they have crowns. And it also says that the elders take their crowns off and they toss them at the foot of the throne and they worship the lamb forever. And that's what we're going to do. Let's quickly, let's finish up the last part. Uh, Verse 23 and 25. The promise acted upon, it now extends to us. Not just Abraham. It's great to look at Abraham as the example. It's great to see his example of faith. But now Paul wants us to know that this is for us. So don't say, well, that was Abraham or that's that person. or that is. These don't apply to me. Yes, they do. This is for you. Paul would say these. But the words that was counted to him or imputed to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. So the promise of justification by faith is extended to us. And it's an extended invitation to everyone. That's why even though we hold to a Reformed theology, the fact is, is that the doctrine of election, the doctrine of sovereignty and salvation, that fuels evangelism. That intensifies evangelism. We're guaranteed success because God is going to call out his elect. And so when you see this, but not for ours only, our responsibility is get the gospel to every single person. Every single person knowing that God will call out those that he's going to give faith and that he's going to regenerate and they're going to be justified by faith. So if that's you today, if you're outside, see, I hear all this, Jim, but I, it's not me. Be like Abraham. It's individual. It is for you. You were brought here today just for that. If you're outside of Christ, you were brought here today just for that. That you would embrace the promise and that God would grant you repentance, grant you faith, and you would be this new creature in the Lord Jesus. So the promise extended, but not for, for Abraham, but for ours also. Now look at verse 23 and 25, through 25 again. And I want us to conclude by looking at this this promise believed. And all I want to do is I want to, I want to look at how Abraham's faith, or I should say our faith, is in harmony with Abraham's. Because there's only one. And what is so important about this is that the gospel believed, the gospel believed is very specific. The gospel is not some vague aspect of God. The gospel is very specific. Paul would say in verse 24, after, but for ours only, it was counted to us, but for ours only, it will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Notice Paul doesn't just do a watered down uh, explanation really of the gospel. He says it was counted to us who believe in him. No. It's not a generic belief in God that saves. 
It is a specific gospel. He goes, who raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord, and delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Why does Paul hinge or say, why does he emphasize in Abraham and in us that the key element of the gospel is the resurrection? Did you know that Abraham believed in the resurrection? All the way back, he believed in the resurrection. You remember when God tells him to take his son? Can you imagine how Abraham slept the night before he went to that mountain? God tells Abraham, I want you to take your son, your only son, your cherished son, and I want you to take him up on the mountain, and I want you to slay him as a sacrifice. How about, how about a test of faith? I think Abraham had a hard night sleeping. So he gets up, and this is what we would read in Genesis 22. It's easy to miss this, so please don't. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt sack offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Not only is his faith being challenged in, in sacrificing his son, he says, just get up and I'll tell you where you're going to go. So he's got all these tests. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering. He's obeying. I should say he's exercising faith, which is synonymous with obedience. And he arose and went to the place which the Lord had told him. Okay, he passed test one. He trusted the location. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship. Now get a hold of this. And come again to you. The sentence structure doesn't change. Abraham says to his servants, listen, we're going up on the mountain. And we're going to worship, which is going to include sacrifice. He says, we'll be going for a little while, but we are coming back. What does that mean? Abraham believed in resurrection. God says, slay my son. And Abraham says, I'm going. And we're coming back. The implication is he believed in resurrection. And friends, for you and I, the resurrection is everything. It's everything. You take away the resurrection and we have no hope. You take away the resurrection and Romans 6 doesn't exist for us to live which we're going to get there and talk about the implications of that. There's much more to say about this, but the point of today's message is simply this. Abraham was justified individually. Are you justified individually? Do you know that you have experienced what Paul would, or John would say is new birth, Jesus was a new birth, and that you stand before God justified, not because of your works, not because of law, not because of ritual, but because you are trusting in a promise that God gave, gave us in Christ, that when he lived and died and rose, that was a propitiation, a substitute, so that we could be justified. Is that happened to you individually? And don't pass on that. It's the most important thing you'll determine in your entire life. And the second lesson for today is Abraham models what the Christian life is all about, promises. Promises that seem so irrational, but faith is irrational. And it all rests on our firm belief in the resurrection like Abraham did and the gospel, the gospel that justifies, delivered for our trespasses and raised for our justification. May God help us to model Abraham an individual justification, and then as, as corporately living community, but also living the Christian life modeled by Abraham. When it doesn't make sense, trust the promise. It'll hold because the promiser is true. Thank you, Father, so much for promises. Forgive me when I worry and fret and don't trust them. Forgive us when we fall short of what you would have. We're so grateful that you are a merciful God and even the promise if we confess our sins you are faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all sin. And we're grateful for that. Lord, help us to think on these things and help us to be more aggressive to live out the Christian life by promises, exercise, relied upon, knowing that that day's coming when we will surrender faith to sight and see the promiser face to face. And we thank you in Christ's name. Amen.